Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast Welcome to episode 133 of the podcast everybody with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel um Andrew, last week, new Top Gear, um, as it's known, turned 20 years old. The, the first episode of the studio-based Top Gear aired yeah. on the 20th of October 2002, so 20 yeah. years ago last week. Um, and so it seemed like a good time to sort of discuss its influence, its legacy, what it meant to you and I, because... I think we'll come at this from two very different perspectives. I was 15 when it first went out and a total petrol head. You were already a, a well-established <laughs> You were already a well-established car journalist. You probably knew Thank you. I was th- I was 36. There you go. You probably knew many of the people involved. In fact, I was older then than you are now. That's that is quite correct. annoying. <laughs> well, I won't rub it in. Um so we came, we came at it from very different perspectives, and I think <clears throat> we might view it slightly differently, but we'll see. Um, and, I, you know, the reason for doing this is because it became a global phenomenon, didn't it, that Top Gear? Um, and unlike any other, any other thing in the world of car journalism, it just became enormous. I, mean, I was told, and this was many years ago, um, but I suspect it's probably true that it was the BBC's second best-selling export after Doctor Who. Wow. Okay. Yeah, now, I don't I know whether that, that was back in the, you know, the Clarkson, Hammond, May era exclusively or whether that's still the case today. But it gives you some idea, doesn't it, of the, not just the impact over here, but the truly global reach of this programme, which is why, you know, everybody who has um, stood in front of those cameras for any period of time for the last 20 years is now a you know, an internationally recognised celebrity. Um, mm. Given that some of them my mates, I, I always find that really quite <laughs> um, 
curious, but um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that later later on. But yes, it's a it's a global phenomenon. That's the point. Um, Somebody also once told me that, and again, this this information is ancient, so it's probably even more now. That Stig merchandising alone returned eight million quid to the BBC coffers. Just Stig stuff. Just Stig (laughs) merchandising. Just T-shirts going, I'm the Stig, or whatever. Um, And again, that was years ago, so maybe more, maybe less, but it just gives you an idea. Of yeah, just how and it was, important the show is. At its peak, it was airing in more than 200 countries. How many countries are there? I mean, that's almost all of them. <laughs> well, I mean, somewhere between 200 and 300. So, yeah. you know, I think we could constantly say most of them. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's often said that it ultimately had a viewership at its peak of 350 million people around the world. Although, apparently, I'm just, I've been reading about it, that's an unreliable figure. Um, okay. But it was a titan at its, at its peak in its heyday. Um, yeah. It's interesting uh, that you're using the past tense there. Well, it's... Mm. Okay, I'm only doing that because... And I want to clear this up right at the beginning. So we're talking about studio-era Top Gear that started in 2002, 20 years ago. Uh, we're yeah. going to call that new Top Gear. Anything that came before is old Top Gear. But I'm yeah. also talking about the Clarkson era specifically. Um, yeah. I, and I, we're not talking about the Grand Tour afterwards. Um, I, you know, new Top Gear. I watch every episode, and it's great. And our mate Chris is is, I think he's the main presenter. Um, but we're not. Question. But we're not really talking about that era of Top Gear. We're talking about um, the Clarkson era of Studio Top Gear that became the phenomenon. Um, I mean, we can touch on the current iteration if we want to. Oh, I um, think we should. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But um, so when we say new and old Top Gear. Um, you know, it's that 2002, that's the, that's the sort of break point between old and new. Um, now I was thinking about this earlier. Um, this was long before iPlayer. And so if something went out and you missed it, you missed it. It was, it was gone pretty much, you know, they might repeat it or it might appear on Dave years later. We had, we, 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 we had things called video recorders even 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so we. I mean, I used to do it. I mean, I, I, I used to, you know, because I couldn't guarantee to be around. I was, I, I'd always record um, Top Gear, and you know, I, I was, I was even smart enough to be able to program my video recorder to record it at the same time every week. So all I need to make do is make sure is that I actually had a tape in the machine, and uh, yeah. and, and and there it would be. But yeah. it just seems so clunky now, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Just imagine kids. Well, probably your kids can't believe you ever had to do that. Um, but the, the point is, I missed that first episode. So I hadn't seen it until last week. Oh, okay. Um, when Rich Porter tweeted a link to it on iPlayer. And so I went back and watched it. And it was, it was so interesting to watch it now. Because we, we think of Studio Era Top Gear as new Top Gear and everything that came with it. Um, but actually, go back and watch that first episode from 2002 and it's a hybrid of old Top Gear and new Top Gear. It's, yeah. It doesn't feel like Top Gear as we think of it at all. So they've got the studio, but there's hardly there wasn't anyone even in an it. audience, was there? There's a few people, a few, literally yeah. a few people. Um, they ha- have the test track and they do things like star in a reasonably priced car. They've got the Stig. Um, they do lap times with supercars. So that's all quite new Top Gear as we think of it. But some of the scripting, some of the shots... Um, some of the uh, the texture and feel of it. It's old Top Gear, clearly a hangover from 90s television production. So the angles, you know, sometimes 
there'll be a shot of a presenter doing a piece to camera from very up high or there'll be a presenter looking down the barrel of the camera and then he'll turn his back and the camera will zoom in and you see his face in a door mirror you know it's that sort of thing the very sort of 90s style of television production you know they also did sort of some serious stuff didn't they it wasn't well they did yeah about and again that's a that's a uh, a throwback to to old top gear are we going to talk about old top gear at all Okay, we can do. I, mean, but I, I just want to. I know I, you were I just, a zygote at the time, but no, I, I, I remember watching it. Um, but this this first episode of New Top Gear was James May wasn't part of the team then; it was Jason Dore instead. And you're right; they I suspect what they were doing was just leaning into Jason's strengths. And so there is a lot of him scrawling on um, windscreens with chalk pen, you know, talking about money off, talking about deals on new cars. So clearly they wanted Top Gear to have this kind of consumer benefit. Um, and later on, they just abandoned that entirely. Um, yeah, I always felt a bit sorry for Jason. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen him for years, but I used to know Jason hmm. um, pretty well because we used to do stuff at the Sunday Times together. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, and he kind of went after one series. And I think the perception always was that he wasn't good enough. I, that's I, My understanding, and I may be completely wrong, is that they just decided to steer the show. I think they realized that the knockabout stuff just worked better. Hmm. Um, and the consumer stuff was kind of like quite old school. Um, and so they just steered the... Um, yeah the program away from it and then they brought mm. james in for the second series um and the rest is history the only other thing that i wanted to comment on from that first episode was <clears throat> yeah you see how their attitude changed over the subsequent years because um later on it became willfully irresponsible they you know, they had this tone that they could not care less and actually yeah. it seemed as though they set about trying to wind people up and upset people, even offend Definitely. people. Definitely. But in this first episode, there was a segment where Har- Hammond, Richard Hammond, um, tries to see if you can drive past a Gatso speed camera fast enough, so fast that it doesn't go off. Um, and the curious bit is that it's shot at Brontingthorpe. And the curious bit, with the stick driving, the funny bit is that Hammond several times says, remember, we're doing this with a prof- professional uh, racing driver in a controlled environment... <laughs> Um, in this almost apologetic tone that you yeah. just don't associate with new Top Gear. No, um, no. And it's, but it, that's natural, isn't it? It found its feet and it evolved and they figured out what worked and they went with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting that even on well, Top Gear of all eras, they never do anything, certainly not in the UK, which can be proven to be breaking the law. So mm. you'll see, I don't know, Clarkson doing some trans-European thing in a in a Veyron, and he'll go right, wow, it's time to put my foot down, and and the thing just streaks off into the distance, and you see the the speedometer just sort of leap round, and it just stops. They, they just <laughs> cut at whatever the speed limit is, and then you'll let, and, and and the rest is just all implied. Um, mm. So yeah, but you don't, you just don't need to say it, do you? Or you certainly didn't. They didn't feel the need to say it. yes, this is done by a professional test driver on a private, mm. you know, mm. environment. Yeah, they just gave up all that stuff. Which yeah. is probably why, you know, one of the reasons it became popular, because it was so irreverent. So, um, it's so on BBC, actually, that people enjoyed watching it for that reason. I think now's probably a good time to have a quick discussion about Old Top Gear. Um, Gosh, I wonder how many people like. listening to this are old enough to remember Old Top well, Gear. Well, I, I remember some of it. I remember Tiff and Quentin. Yeah? I bet you don't remember. Okay, who was its first presenter? You'll know yeah, the name. I don't know. Okay. It was a woman. Yes. And she's still on telly at the moment. Yeah. 
Go on, tell me. Angela Rippon. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. No, exactly. And you know, if you look down all the presenters of it, I've, I've got a list here. Um, you know, our friend Jason Barlow did it. Uh, the design bloke Stephen Bailey, uh, the late Russell Bulgin, uh, another oh, did old he mate do of it? mine. Yeah, briefly. Huh? I don't know how many episodes he did. A bloke called Jeremy Clarkson. He was on mm-hmm. it. Blake called yeah. James May. He was on it. Yeah. Um, VBH, Vicky Butler Henderson was on it. Uh, Brendan Coogan, Steve Coogan's brother, until he was done for drunk driving and got fired. Um, who else? Uh, Chris Goffey. He was a stalwart of it for years. William Willard was the other. Uh, and Sue yeah. Baker as well. Um, Kate Humble, you know, very well known mm. for, um, you know, wildlife presenting and everything else these days. Um, Sterling Moss is down here on the list. I don't know what he did. Really? Uh, obviously, Tiff. Frank Page, um, Quentin, Andy Wilman. Yeah, I mean, so many people over mm. such a long period of time. I mean, in fact, get this, old Top Gear, you know, we think, gosh, you know, this Top Gear has been running for 20 years. Old Top Gear ran for 24. So they still ha- they're still not as old as old Top Gear. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, it was ha- immensely successful. Was it? It was, really? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, in its day, yeah, because I mean, it started off as a little thing. It wasn't wasn't even on BBC Nationwide. It was just a sort of, I can't remember who broadcast it, whether BBC Midlands or whatever. Uh, and then they sort of trialed it for a bit, and it just took off. I mean, it was immensely popular, being it largely, I guess, because people only had two other channels they could watch. You know, there were I don't there wasn't even Channel Four around when that started. Um, and so they pull in massive audiences, um, you know, I'm sure bigger audiences than um, were ever pulled in by New Top Gear um, in the UK, lot just because people just had no alternatives. Mm. Um, and it just okay. became a staple. And it was, it was very earnest yeah. most of the time. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly the bits that we remember are sort of William Willard um, presenting Road Test and Sue Baker. And it was, you know, it was a consumer show, wasn't it? It was, you know, mm. it was aimed at people who wanted to find out what new cars were like because one day they might go out and buy one um and you know it it got a bit more relaxed i mean particularly when people like quentin came on um and tiff started doing you know um his stuff and you know reviewing racing cars and that sort of thing so it wasn't all completely straight laced but it was it was such a far cry from the gathabout uh atmosphere of the top gear that that, that we know today um but i mean mm. it wasn't bad i mean it ran for a very very long time and by the standards of the 70s and the 80s and also the other thing was there was very very little else around um in that space i mean it actually had a predecessor you definitely won't remember this because you weren't alive uh it was called wheelbase right and that ran from the mid 60s to the mid 70s and really all i remember about that is it was the only way you could get to watch a grand prix Oh. So they would, you know, so they would go to, I think they only usually do the European Grand Prix. And they had like uh, a commentator in London, it was usually Raymond Baxter, I think, and three camera positions. So what you'd get is, you know, you get the start and all the cars would go honking off down to the first corner, go around the way, and then they just disappear. And then you get sort of shots of scenery for a bit until camera two picked them up halfway around the lap. And then they disappear again. <laughs> it, was, it was all terribly clunky. But, you know, it was live motor racing. Um, and sometimes the satellites would go down or, you know, they'd move out of the area or whatever. And it was all just terribly sort of Heath Robinson and, um, and Cat Hand at the time. But, of course, we didn't know what we were missing. You know, if you no. look back at it, you just think, gosh, how shonky that must have been. But at the time, it was amazing. And, I mean, I can remember... You know, just watching, you know, my heroes. Um, 
I think actually they televised in 1976. I think they televised uh, the Japanese Grand Prix where James Hunt became world champion on mm. it. Um, I'd have been ten. Can't remember, but anyway, yeah. So, you know, but there was just nothing else around at the time, uh, and then New Top Gear came along. And what are your thoughts as to why New Top Gear suddenly just became mm. this extraordinary thing? <clears throat> um, what was so well, good about it? What was so different? Uh, and was it planned as well? Was it planned? Because it was when uh, James joined from season two. Um, yeah. And then you had that chemistry between Clarkson, Hammond and May. And yeah. I think it's that chemistry that is at the heart of it. Um, and it actually, it wasn't until a little bit later on that they started doing uh, films, all three of them. They started doing challenges, all three of them. But they yeah. must have had this wonderful light bulb moment when they had the three together at some point and they just realized how entertaining they were to watch yeah i, I wonder about that because i mean i don't know because i can't remember exactly how it progressed but my perception was uh that james and i say this you know with james being one of my oldest friends i think that he was quite nervy at the beginning yeah and i think um you know Clarkson and Hammond were always incredibly comfortable in front of the camera. Um, you know, they, they looked like they were born in front of a camera. And James wasn't like that. You could see that he was presenting. Mm. Um, and I wonder whether they didn't wonder. Because James had already been... I think James had been fired by old Top Gear because he because they didn't think he was good enough. James might come and tell me this is complete nonsense. <laughs> but that's, my, that's what I remember. Um, and I think... And because he was such a good mate by the time we went on the new Top Gear, because we worked together at Autocar for years in the late 90s. Um, I don't mean the late 90s, I mean the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, and I was, you know, I was just worried that, you know, he'd have this sort of bright light moment and then it wouldn't, you know, work out for him. But um, I think there must have been a moment when suddenly they realised, actually, we've got something here. Yeah. Um, but whether it happened bang like that or whether it evolved over a couple of seasons, I can't remember. I think it took a little bit of time. And you're right, yeah. when you go and watch um, May's first few episodes, yeah, he's, he's, all, he's playing more of a character, that sort of straight-laced, uptight British reserve. Um, yeah. that, that comes through. It's not until later on that you really see him howling with laughter and being silly yeah. and messy, cocking about. And, and, and actually, that's a very good point, Dan, because I think they they needed him. They asked him to be this character this captain yeah. slow character and and he adopted that persona and because james is such a a sort of honest straightforward guy i can imagine him finding that awkward um but when he got into it i think once he learned how to do it then it was fine and then it became what it became um but when i watch him even today on grand tour um you know i think that that's still the persona if you want to know what james is like as a person go and do mm. the stuff that go and watch all the other stuff that he does that isn't top gear or grand tour yeah. go and watch james may in japan go and watch uh, man lab or, or 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 you know any of these things um and that's him and he's and it's a subtly but significantly different person to the person you see on top gear um and the non-top gear james is is well is james um in a way that the top gear james isn't quite mm. that's captain slow do, do you think they were all to some extent playing characters because when you watch Clarkson's other stuff, it's a different persona. Probably Hammond as well. Yeah, I, um, I don't really know 
uh, Richard. I used to know Jeremy reasonably well. I haven't seen him in in years. Uh, I mean, Jeremy, I think, is playing a version of Jeremy, definitely. Mm, Yeah. Um, An accentuated version of Jeremy and not all of Jeremy. Um, And, you know, I know Jeremy the journalist much more than Jeremy the television presenter. Um, And I know what a professional he is, how incredibly well he writes and how hard he thinks about stuff. Um, And that contrasts, I think, quite, starkly with the you know with the idiot that turns up on our television screen and i think that's a carefully um a carefully curated idiot um because that's what works um richard i i I don't really know because i I hardly know him at all um and james you know is it's 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 a version of james but it's but it's not but i think i think clarkson is truer to clarkson on top gear than james is to james Mm, yeah interesting okay um, so, the, I mean, the chemistry between them, what did you, watching them knock about together, having fun, being cruel to each other in a charming way, that's, I think that is probably at the heart of its success. But the other thing that I think is really important around that era of Top Gear is, and I think it's Clarkson's real genius, but there are other people, you know, Andy Willman, the exec producer, maybe even... Other people like Richard Porter, the script editor. I think what Absolutely. they understood. Absolutely, I think I Wilman think, and Porter are critical to the yeah. success of that. Yeah, yeah. I think with their real insight into making it such an enormous entertainment show was that they understood that cars. Not you know, not many people love cars the way we do, but lots of yeah. people are a bit interested because well, they can be exciting and beautiful and dramatic to watch, but you know almost all adults have to drive almost all adults have to buy a car and so they you know a car will be their second biggest purchase in life after a house and so they they have good reason to pay attention and they want to make sure they buy the right car and they're excited on new car day so there is this sort of latent interest um and i think i think those guys they realize that a TV audience is interested enough in cars for for cars to be a hook um, yeah. from which to hang an entertainment show, a family show, um, mm. and I think that was the the true insight. I think that was the super clever thing. And you know, Clarkson is, I mean, you could argue May as well, but perhaps riding on Clarkson's coattails. But he is the only car journalist who has ever become a household name, transcending cars. And I think it's because he always understood that cars could be um, interesting enough to the average man in the street. And he's, he's so often written and um, discussed cars in that kind of way. Moving away mm. from the super nerdy, geeky, um, the detail-based stuff that you and I are into and talking mm. about them in a way that's relatable to a broad audience. And yet... And yet, and yes, I agree with all of that. Yeah. But there is something else, uh, which is why I think it is so phenomenally clever. Because although it is exactly what you say, it's a show about cars, but using cars as a hook. And it's actually a show Mm. about people gadding about. Yeah. The the first and foremost qualification of presenting that show, or at least having someone on that show, is that you know about cars. Yeah. It wouldn't, yeah, that's and, right. and, it and, wouldn't and to work, me, the reason Clarkson, Hammond and May worked so well is that behind all the tomfoolery, behind all the mucking about, were three mm. guys who really knew about cars. Yeah. And, and that, and that yeah. is why, you know, the wheels came so spectacularly off the bus with Chris Evans. 
because there was a man who quite clearly was in love with the images of with the image of cars what he thought cars said about him but i mean maybe he does love cars he never appeared to me to be someone who knew very much about cars or was in any way interested in cars other than about other than in what he thought they said about him whereas with clarkson hammond and may and today you know probably more than any of them with harris Mm. um there is an authenticity there they absolutely know that i was talking to um kate humble kate lives locally um and she's a mate and you know she said to me that top gear was the show which proved to her that you can't present your way however good you are you can't present your way out of not knowing your subject Mm. or not caring about your subject Mm. um and you know and i think there's an awful lot to be said for that and which is why you know with modern top gear i think actually they found a fantastic formula with um with paddy and with fred um and i hope they carry on doing it for a long time but to me they're replaceable yeah Mm. Yeah. the one person and i'm not saying this because he's a mate although he is um the one person i think that um would do whose removal would do top gear more damage than anything else is chris because without chris with chris comes that authenticity you know with chris that's the show saying yeah we're going to be idiots we're going to fool but actually don't worry we know what we're talking about and while they've got that um i think they've got something um the other thing just going back to the clarkson hammond may thing which i think they've been trying to recapture with varying levels of success ever since is that they got people who weren't at all interested in cars and this is the kind of contrast i was talking about um to watch it because actually what people were watching almost without realizing it was a sitcom yeah, yeah? it's men behaving badly on wheels isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, it is and, <clears throat> and and that's why people love it because people just and that's where the chemistry that is where and i think that honestly i i think they were lucky but they were clever too and i think you know to a very large extent when you get brains like Clarkson and Hammond and May and Wilman and Porter around, uh, you, you make a lot of your own luck. And it was the way those three got on together. Also, I would say, tempered by a bit of BBC common sense. Um, you know, I really like the Grand Tour, but to me, it's never been quite as controlled as they were when they were on top gear because i think when you let them off the leash completely um i don't know it's just they kind of just over rev a little bit Um, Mm. again just my opinion i mean i still love it i think it's fantastic um but um i think that the three of them being controlled by the bbc uh was you know the greatest motoring show we will ever see Mm. Uh, I can't see anyone coming along and doing it better than that because I think the chance of ever getting three people who work together that well in front of a camera who know that much about cars, who know that much, but whose interest lies in such different areas of cars and who are that good on television and who also interact with each other that well, I just don't think that happens twice. It's lightning. It is. It is. It, it, they captured something, whether it's serendipitous or planned, I don't know, but they... Yeah. God, they had something. Um, yeah, it was powerful. I'd, <clears throat> as I said, I was 15 when it started. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> a diehard petrol head. Loved cars, but a frustrated one. Um, because nobody in my family really loved cars. Actually, my uncle is a, is a, a car enthusiast, a petrol head. Um, but he didn't live locally. Um, and I, you know, I didn't know anyone else who loved cars. I had no way of even sitting in 
the cars that I was seeing in car magazines. So I had car yeah. magazines, and after 2002, I had Top Gear. And I, I think it was life-changing for me. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it probably made me want to get into this line of work. Um, it, Clarkson, as I've discussed before on this podcast, was actually a hero to me in yeah. my adolescence. Yeah. Um, and I, but there was also something weirdly empowering about that show because um, they celebrated and had fun with cars, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and they discussed them in a kind of irreverent and fun and silly way. Um, and watching that show, the show became so popular, and yet it was about cars. So somehow it validated my enthusiasm, my passion for cars. It made it less unusual, less abnormal, and more mainstream. And that was a really bizarre thing to sort of experience firsthand. You know, all my friends who didn't really care about cars would talk about Top Gear. And, yeah. and I could talk about it in a more informed way than anybody else. And yeah. so, you know, it, 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 it made it's me feel... Yeah, it gave me this sort of sense of belonging, I guess. So it yeah. really meant something to me. It was, it was but it's, it, but it's also great, isn't it, when you can have a conversation. You know, I've got a few friends around here um, who are just intellectually in a different league to me. And I sort of <laughs> sit there. Um, and, and they're lovely people. But I'm, I'm just struggling to keep up with them because I'm just not as well-read or <laughs> and intelligent and quick as them. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you can sit down in a conversation and you can actually just relax because you know the turf. And yeah, it's just, you know, and, and, and for someone like you to have had, you know, no friends who are particularly interested in cars, no, well, very little immediate family are very interested in cars, suddenly for this thing to come along, which you could all talk about together, and you had this mm. thing, this shared thing in common, and it being something which you just, you know, you probably thought, well, I probably know a bit more about this than most of you guys. That mm. must have just been... I can see why it changed your life. I can absolutely yeah. see why it was such on a on a young chap's mind, feeling sort of, you know, out on his own a bit, and then suddenly finding this constituency uh, of people through this television program that you could have this, you know, this shared common. I don't. Well, it would have been a passion for you. For them, it would have just been an interest. But it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, that would have, yeah, I can completely understand that. It was it was very powerful for me, very powerful. And of course, <clears throat> if there's a third element that made that show so successful, it must have been fantastic ideas. Um, yes. And, you know, so many spring to mind right away, like trying to kill a Toyota Hilux. Um, oh, and the superb. stuff they did with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put, putting it on top and, of yeah, the building just the that's going to be... It's the idea and then the execution yeah, of the yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean... Okay, the Hilux, I think, is obviously a a standout case. Um, And you just sat there thinking, all the time, have they killed it? And then when Mm. you just think, well, what are they going to do next? And then when they stuck it on top of that building and blew up the building. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think in terms of the spectacle, the surprise, the idea, I think that is television at its absolute best. That is riveting you know you, you don't have to give a toss about cars to find that absolutely riveting mm. Mm. um and you know, and the adventures you know the yes. north pole thing they did well actually oh. technically the magnetic north pole but let's not you know um <laughs> you know and, and okay one of the things i want to discuss with you was that uh, one of my problems with top gear as it evolved through the clarks and hammond may era is that with every successive successive st- series, 
it, to me, it became more of a scripted show mm. um, insofar as you could see that so much of what you were seeing was a setup. Um, and, and, and when you suddenly realise that what you're looking at is a very carefully and cleverly crafted show rather than almost just reportage on the adventures of these idiots, um, to me, it lost something. Um, mm. And I just wonder whether you felt that um, or whether, you know, when they are, I mean, I remember that you know, one of the last things they did, but they did those things with ambulances and how to get a patient to a hospital very quickly. And, 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 and I think it was Hammond ended up sort of firing one through some kind of rocket through the back door. And I can remember crying with laughter. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> but please don't tell me that that was in any way real. It yeah. was just, you know, it was it was just a bit of fun. And I, I was a bit torn because while I could appreciate that what I was watching was hilarious, it was hilarious in the same way that Forty Towers was hilarious. Um, it wasn't, to me, in any way real anymore. Mm. Um, mm. And although you know a lot of the stuff they did was was real and 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 you know and fine and interesting and fun, there was to me increasingly too much of that scripted stuff going on towards the end. It's <clears throat> yeah, for me, it's suspension of disbelief as it is with any yeah. piece of fiction or any piece of <clears throat> television or yeah. movie yeah. or anything and when it's at its best you're quite happy to suspend your disbelief and you're quite happy go to along with it. Yeah. go along with it and even if I'm you think, know what's coming it. yeah even if yeah. you know what's coming even if you see the gag it's coming over funny. the horizon it's funny and you still laugh but absolutely, there are times and where sometimes you just... the, sometimes the gag is funnier because you know it's coming. Because you know it's coming, yeah. And it, it just tickles when, you when for I, that when reason. I, when I was a kid, um, there's a film which was made in the mid-70s, which you may have seen, but only because Harris would have made you see it because it's one of his favourite films. It's called The Return of the Pink Panther. Okay, and it's no. got Jacques Clouseau, okay? And yeah. there's a bit where Clouseau is in a room with a vacuum cleaner and a parrot. Okay. And the parrot's loose in the room. And you, you already know what's going to happen, don't you? Sooner or later, the parrot's going up the vacuum cleaner. And they string it out for about 10 minutes. And then when the parrot finally does go up the, the vacuum cleaner, because you know that's what's ultimately going to happen from the moment he walks in the room, that's, it's just funny. that's what's funny. Because you, you're proven right. So, yeah, yeah, so that, that can it's work. It's that, isn't it? But, uh, no, I, I completely agree with you there. Uh, maybe it had a lull, or maybe it became too familiar. But it, got, it reached a point where it was... It felt overdone. Um, it felt maybe too obvious. But that's natural, isn't it? Because it can't go on forever and ever being no, <clears throat> amusing and, in the same and, and, way. And, and also, the other thing I would say absolutely in its defence is it's not aimed at me. You know, I am... Um, mm. you know, I, do, I, well, I don't do what they do for a living, but I do cars for a living. Yeah. You know, I, I, I so run an adjacent and, thing, you know, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not a target audience because if I was a target audience, it would never have got broadcast because the, there aren't enough me's around at all. So, you know, I think they were absolutely right to use that poetic license to broaden its appeal, to appeal to people, you know, who are, you know not as obsessed with cars and don't spend their entire life in and around cars like you and I do. Um, and if the price of that was that people like me sort of look down on those and go, well, I thought they didn't actually do that or, you know, they didn't do it, then, you know, absolutely, you know, fair enough. Um, but I guess we all just, you know, see these things, <coughs> excuse me, um, differently. Yeah. Uh, do you know, we could keep doing this forever, but there's, there, I mean, there were other reasons because, Top Gear, particularly with the specials, it became part travel show. 
Um, and again, the one that springs to mind is the Botswana special. Um, yeah, that was actually I think that's the November. Best one they did. That was 15 years ago. So they're, they're only five years into that new format, and they did that. Um, and it, I think that's the best one. I think that is peak Top Gear. But quite apart from the fact that it's celebrating these interesting cars, um, and quite apart from the fact that it's three blokes knocking about together, it's beautifully shot. It, you know, it, it, it takes you through Botswana. Um, yeah. And you see how spectacular the place is. Um, and so it became, and again, that's probably why it appealed to families, because there's more going on than just talking about, so much more going yeah. on than just talking about cars. Um, but that, I mean, that shows why success breeds success, because you know, that, that, that Botswana show, um, because Top Gear by then was so successful, yeah. you know, they had the money to do that. They could do it. And, they? Yeah. And, and they could have squandered that, but they didn't, because by then, you know, they just ticked every box, didn't they? You know, they had the idea, they had the presenters, and then they had the execution. And everything was perfect. Um, you know, they could have done that same show, but with three other people, and it wouldn't have been anything like as good. Or they could have done it, but somewhere, you know, nothing like as interesting as Botswana. Or they could have done it there and, 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 and filmed it as a sort of a bit of a sort of, you know, from the hip travelogue. And again, you know, change one element and the magic is gone. And what was so superb, so brilliant about that was that they just they just had it all. Um, but ultimately, I think you're right. I think it just comes down to the idea. That's what, you know, and, and that's certainly on TI what we think about is we just try to, because we try quite hard. Sometimes we have to because a new car comes out and we need to review it. But we we try quite hard to do stuff that other people haven't done because we think that's you know more interesting. And I, th- I think with a lot of their travel things um, and and just the ambition as well. You know, we're going to yeah. drive a car to the magnetic North Pole despite the fact that no one's ever done it before. <laughs> You know, and we're just a bunch of television presenters. Oh, and by the way, um, we'll have to, we, um, and we'll make Hammond run most of the way there and get towed by dogs the rest of the time. You know, mm. that's you can't see old Top Gear doing that, or any or, or any other <laughs> show. And it was, and it was spellbinding because of it. Yeah, that was spectacular. That one. Um, now we're celebrating this show because, well, I loved it, but <clears throat> it wasn't perfect. And we've spoken about how um, at times it felt too scripted and of course there were endless controversies going over the line on more than one occasion we don't really need to get into those so it wasn't a perfect show by any means um but what i did end and it did end yeah for we know why um but we you know i'm interested to know from your point of view what did it mean if anything for other car media magazines maybe other tv shows did it just did it elevate other titles to some degree, or did it just blow everything out of the water? Well, I think it. I think it did to almost, almost just by accident, or, or or by a. I mean, obviously, you know, Top Gear magazine came along. Um, that's actually the reason why Fifth Gear was called Fifth Gear, because when Top Gear got canned, mm. old Top Gear got canned. Um, Channel 5 wanted to do it and they wanted to call it Top Gear, but they couldn't because Top Gear magazine existed by then, which is why they called it Fifth Gear. Um, and, you know, Top Gear magazine has been out for a, for a very long time now. And because, you know, they have a free house ad to many millions of people on a lot of Sunday nights. Um, yeah, and, the, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of public, um, well, I don't know if it is public money anymore. No, it probably isn't anymore. But, um, you know, they had a lot of resources 
um, and they could, you know, they always get the Top Gear presenters to write their co- their columns. You know, they had an incredible inbuilt advantage, mm. um, and I think that did force other motoring media to raise their game um, to respond to it. I think, you know, so if you look at Fifth Gear, um, you know, I think you know they have, you know, it's it's it, that is a much more conventional motoring program. Um, because they've never had, and, and in fact, if they tried to be Top Gear, um, they would have absolutely killed them, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, they have tried to do it a more conventional way. And, you know, Fifth Gear has been around for a very, very long time. I mean, I know it's had its ups and downs and everything else, but, you know, it has survived. Um, but nothing has ever come close to um, to the success of, of Top Gear, and I think, mm. you know, I think we know why. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you've mentioned that James May is an old friend of yours. <clears throat> was, yeah. was it bizarre watching him become, I think, probably one of the most recognisable people in Britain? I think, yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit. I think I was helped by the fact that I didn't really think it was James up there. Mm. Um, so that kind of... Uh, and also, yeah, the, what I was helped by massively, and it's exactly the same to this day, is... And Christopher's exactly the same. You know, they have not... In, in the way they interact with their with their friends um they haven't changed at all mm. so you know I, I see james or i see chris and I, you know I, you know there is no sense in which i'm thinking gosh you know, there's a famous television presenter i'm just seeing james and i'm just seeing chris so from that point so I've, i i think i've been pretty successfully able to sort of divorce what they do for a living yeah. and what we do as as mates down the pub um and you know and and if if that hadn't been the case if they had changed um or in any way become sort of starry, or, or been affected by their roles in televisions, I, I, I think we'd have struggled because they wouldn't have been the person that you know had been my buddy. So mm. yeah, so it was. I mean, it was odd um, because I don't think that I actually knew anybody. Well, I suppose I knew. I probably would have known Clarkson a little bit, but you know, Clarkson is somebody who I know. I mean, you know, he's an acquaintance. I, you know, he, he, we, he's not someone that I would in any way describe as a friend. Um, only because, you know, I just haven't seen that much of him. But James was. So James was the first person who was a friend who got famous. And I guess that's a bit sort of strange. But actually, you, you, know, you notice it most when you're sitting in a pub. Um, and what happens is one person will come up and ask for an autograph or mm. a selfie, at which stage the entire pub suddenly feels empowered to do the same. Um, and, you know, I can, I can remember once it took me 20 minutes to get him out of a building. <laughs> because we'd been sitting there quite quietly and you could see people looking and then one of them plucked up the courage and because both james and chris are so unbelievably good with people who do that um as they should be because as they rightly say you know these are the people who pay you, you yeah. know, who pay our wages um they always take the time they always ask questions of you know people who've been kind enough to come up to them but it does get quite time consuming mm. um so you know quite often um you know, we'll just end up in each other's houses or, or whatever because it's easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's more more annoying for us, it seems, isn't it, trying to hang out with these guys. Um, yeah, so the, the only other thing I wanted to talk about with Top Gear was the, the Dunsfold test track because that was a proper Top Gear innovation, having basing, well, having a studio and a test track outside. Um, it meant they, they could do so much with it. And, you know, in 15 years working in this industry... I, I went to Dunsfold once in 2008, and then never again until this month where I've been twice. Um, so I've, yeah. I've spent a bit of time at Dunsfold recently, and it's a um, it, it's an interesting place. I mean, the the 
it's not a great track. track, is it? It's not brilliant, but um, you know, given that it is an old airfield and they've just had to use what was there, it's not like yeah. Silverstone where they've developed it into a really great circuit. It's um, literally it's a stack of tyres in one spot and some lines on the road, and actually it's a reasonable circuit given yeah. that. You know, you've got yeah. a mix of corners, there's some tight fiddly stuff, some properly quick, ballsy stuff. Um, I was there with the GT3 RS, the new one, um, and it was so frustrating because the weather was just foul. The track was yeah. so wet. And when you're coming off that back straight um, into the second to last corner, well, A, the, the approach to that corner, you're going from a wide, expansive runway to a narrow It's, well, it's a really road. difficult corner, isn't it, it's to, so to spot it properly? Yeah. It's really tough to spot it. Yeah. But then yeah. in the, when it's wet, you're going from grippy, con- grippy tarmac to super slippery concrete. It's like, mm. it's like asphalt to ice. And the thing, the car just slides, washes out underneath you. You've got to be so careful. Um, but yeah, I mean, given what they had to work with, I think they did a pretty good job of turning it into um, you know, a sort of worthwhile circuit. But you're limited, aren't you, with what you can do with what's actually still an active airfield. So let me ask you, uh, and we're not going to dwell on Top Gear of today, but do you think it, it will endure into the EV era? Um, do you think it's going to become a show about historics? Can you see them tramping across, um, you know, the middle of absolutely nowhere in their electric, this, that and the other? Uh, or, or do you think that the... The business has changed so much. The way that people interact with cars is changing and will change so much that it's the time will come when that sort of service just naturally had its day. Or maybe we'll need it even more because we will be so, we'll miss it all so much that all we'll have is just idiots mucking about in, in cars on telly. I don't know. It's a very good point. And do you know what? I'm just, I'm just thinking about it now as you speak. You know, when they do a Botswana special, when they all... Uh, choose a car and take it somewhere one of the key elements there is that each presenter at least pretends to love their car and they throughout the entire episode they are making the case for why their car is the best and they're willing their own cars along and maybe that's just playing on something that we all have within us um where we feel some kind of enthusiasm or affinity for the car that we own Maybe Can you just... see them doing that in their Volkswagen ID4s? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? And even more so when lots of us don't own cars, but we just rent them by the hour. Yeah. Then suddenly that instinct for um, that sense of possession over a vehicle is gone. I, I think it will continue, but I think it will need reinventing. And that's when you're going to need somebody really clever. Because I think... Mm. And I haven't really thought about this at all until now, as you could probably tell. But I suspect there is a gem of a format um, just waiting. Uh, and it could be reinvented in the same way uh, that Wilman and Clarkson reinvented it 20 years ago. Um, and you could make a new top gear for the EV generation. Um, and I think you keep... Uh, it would still have to be anarchic. It would still have to be fun. Um, but whether it were, it existed to sort of represent the world that had gone or whether it found a way of still being relevant. And that's the thing, isn't it? Does it need to be relevant? Does it still mm. need to be a consumer show? Does it need ultimately to have views about cars? Or is it okay that it's just, as I said earlier, men behaving badly on wheels? 
um, and that the actual key is just to have some presenters who get on well together, can muck about together, uh, and they just happen to do it in cars. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. I think Fifth Gear have gone all electric. Maybe it's just for a standalone series or something, but yeah, it's an interesting one. They're still called Fifth Gear. It should be one gear, really, shouldn't it, if it's all about electric gear. cars? Gear. <laughs> um, yeah, I, someone will come along there, won't they? Someone will reinvent it and be clever and think of something that we haven't done and maybe they'll make another... It's hard to imagine it happening again, another global phenomenon out of a car show, yeah. but who knows? So there you go, Top Gear. Um, mm. Okay, well, we've got a listener question coming up. You have not been briefed. Actually, no, you can fill us in on some of this this question, but I've I've made some notes. So... Before we do that, let me just say thank you all to listening. Thank you all for listening. Um, thank you all for rating and reviewing the podcast. I can see you doing it. It makes a big difference because that's how we find new listeners. So please keep doing it. Um, and if you haven't already, check out the-intercooler.com, our website, or go and download our app from the App Store, The Intercooler. Um, so the listener question this week comes from, I hope I'm getting your name right, Uri. Um, and Uri wants to know, we're all aware that the Alpine A110 scored 10 out of 10 in a TI road test. It's our only 10 yeah. out of 10. Um, and the yeah. GT3 is a 9 out of 10, and he gives some other others. But he wants to have examples for each score. Um, so I've just run through our recent reviews, and I've got a handful here. So 9 out of 10 cars is the 911 GT3, 911 GT3 RS, Cayman GT4 RS, VW ID <laughs> no, VW ID Buzz. I put that one in there intentionally. Um, Aston Martin DBX 707. McLaren Artura, Toyota GR86. 8 out of 10 is 296 GTS, the Ferrari. Uh, Bentley Bentayga Extended Wheelbase. Porsche Cayenne Turbo GT. Caterham mm-hmm. 420 Cup. Super Manual Maserati MC20. 7 out of 10, 296 GTB. Um, mm-hmm. Andrew English actually preferred the GTS, which is interesting. Caterham 170S, Puma ST, current Golf GTI, 6 out of 10, BMW i4 M50, Audi S3, BMW Z4, the 2 litre one, and 5 out of 10, I think we've only ever had two fives, Mini JCW GP, Jumping yeah. the Works GP, VW Polo GTI. Um, yeah. So they're just a few examples, but I, you know, I think people want to know why isn't there a 3 out of 10 in there? You know, and what's the point in having scores well, because, 1 to 4? Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, th- I think it's a very good point. Um, and yeah. because I guess that there is... It's this, it's this thing, which, which I do rail against a bit, but I understand why people say it, there's, no, there's no such thing as a bad car anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, because cars tend to be of a standard. So maybe we should start with a position that, you know, naught out of 10 is an average car um or or, or, you know it's interesting but to me if you're five out of ten that means you're mediocre yeah Yeah? you're not terrible because we don't drive cars you don't really get into cars these days and think this is a terrible car it just doesn't happen um i mean a, a terrible car is a car that you know that breaks down or is so uncomfortable you can't drive it um or is in some way terminally flawed 
And, you know, because of, you know, because of legislation, because of the way car manufacturers are these days, you know, those cars just don't seem to appear. And maybe we should take that into account. We don't at the moment. But, you know, a car would, to, to score less than five, a car would, I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I mean, it, it, it might well do. I certainly don't rule it out. But a car would have to be woeful. And you just don't get true. You can get cars which are dull. You can get cars which are disappointing. You can get cars which are flawed. But they very, very, very rarely tend to. You don't. So you know, you get a new car from a, you know, a massive OEM with all the things they already have to comply with. So it's already going to be safe, and you know, and it's going to be reliable. And cars have also got better because. You know, the customer is so much more savvy these days. The customer, you know, researches these things, knows all about them. You know, 30 years ago, it wasn't possible because there was no internet. And so you could make really shit cars, you know, and, you know, Ford used to stick Ford badges on. People would go and buy them because they didn't know any better. Well, they do these days. So it's, um, it's really difficult. And if you did make a shit car, it simply wouldn't sell. So people don't do it. So, you know, so that's the reason, um, that we do it and i think there is an argument and maybe we can have a conversation about it um but then we'd have to go back and then reorder all the previous ones according to our new rules whatever they happen to be but that's why we do it whether we're right or wrong to do it um i i I understand why some people might think one way and others the other that's right there there is an argument to say Uh, let's imagine you've got a five star system if a car gets one star well done you've built an adequate car and you get a star for that um if it's a good car, it gets three stars. You know, it's a good car, so it gets three stars. Well done. And the manufacturer should be pleased with three stars. And only if it's truly outstanding does it get a five. But we see it in every aspect of car media, I think. Scores seem to be skewed upwards. So it's, Mm. you know, three. It's so rare to see a car get a three-star rating. Three and a half seems to be... Yeah, three and a half seems to be the lowest that that tends to... Almost everything is a four. Um, and so we do try, don't we? We do try to be stricter, um, we less are. generous I mean, the with fact, our... The, 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 the fact that we've only ever had one 10 out of 10, or in other people speak, five out of five, five you know, tells yeah. you all you need to know. Um, yeah. you, know, we are, you know, because to us, if the car is the best car in its class, and you know, that's why we're talking about the ID Buzz, we're talking about the DBX 707, we're talking about those Porsches, they are, you know, they get 9 out of, 10, out of 10 because they're the best cars in their class. That's what 9 out of 10 means to us. To get a 10 out of 10, you need to be game-changing. Mm. And that's the point. Uh, and others don't have that distinction. Um, for them, a 10 out of 10 car is the best car in its class. But that doesn't leave any room for a car like yeah. an A110, which comes along and just, you know, resets the boundaries of mm. what that kind of car should be like. So... We are tougher than everybody else, I think. Um, and our star ratings mean slightly different things. So I think we are t- tough. We are more discerning. I think there's an argument which says we could be even tougher. Um, yeah. and, and we've talked about it. So, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a very, very interesting question. But we, we do at least try to be transparent. And that's why I chose to answer this question on the podcast. Because we want, we want all of you to understand where it is we're coming from. And transparency is just so important. So thank you for your question. Um, Keep them coming. It's a fun way to end each episode of the podcast. We'll do it again next week. Before then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.